Welcome to the United Church Podcast. We're a new church here in Seattle committed to an ethic of love and walking in the ways of Jesus. We're striving to be a people united, united with Jesus, each other, ourselves, and the world around us. We hope you're encouraged and challenged by this week's homily. May the peace of Christ be with you. This is the day of technical challenges. Welcome. Here's the thing that I'm super excited about. It has been almost two years as a church, and this is our first Sunday with a major technical challenge. So, ha. We're learning. We're learning how to think on the fly and do things on the fly. Oh my goodness, what a day. So, on UnitedChurch.live, as you scroll down beyond the, the lyrics to that song, you'll see a little button that says Homily Notes. If you click that, it'll open up the PDF of all the slides. Some of them are important, some of them are not. For some of you, it's just an opportunity to follow along with what's going and it'll work. Now, some of you are already scrolling through all of them. You're flipping through and you're like, ooh, what's this gonna be, huh? Here we go. I'm asking you to restrain yourself. Impulse control. You don't need to know it all at this very moment. Allow the time that we have together to just flow and to be. Alrighty. Let me pray for us, specifically for me. This is going to be a bit of a challenge as I flip through slides and my own notes to make all this happen. So let's pray. God, thank you for gathering us here together today to look at your word and to specifically begin the work more earnestly of what it means to be who it is that you have created us to be. Fathers, we've already meditated upon Psalm 139. We have already spent time singing and pondering some of these in-depth questions that we wrestle with day in and day out. Father, may your spirit guide us. May your spirit calm our own spirits. And may we be the people that you have called us to be in this moment, in this time, as we continue to grow more and more into your likeness. So Father, give us peace Give us rest and give us open hearts, open minds, and open ears. Father, may we see, hear, and know what it is that you have for us today. It is in your Son's name that we pray all of these things. Amen. Every so often, every so often, you stumble across the perfect meme. And you know what I'm talking about. It's the kind of meme that is just strikes you with the perfect amount of snark mixed with truth, mixed with good old Pacific Northwest passive-aggressive-ism, uh, passive humor and timing. This is the meme that I ran across this week that I thought was absolutely perfect. It's a picture of I-5 and it says, treat yourself like I-5 and never stop working on yourself no matter how inconvenient it is for everyone else. Oh, if that isn't the most perfect, perfect meme of not just timing for the things that we are experiencing and facing with the perpetual state of I-5, but also what it is that we are experiencing here as a church as we're working through this series, Becoming Who You Are. This is our work this month. 
We are sitting and spending time in trying to discover our identity. And granted, for some of us, it will be a discovery process. For others of us, it will be even more difficult work at digging into the soil, into the depths of our spirit, into the depths of our soul, into the depths of our identity and who it is that God has created us to be. For some of us, we will continue to recognize more and more just how much this is a lifelong pursuit with no end in sight of truly understanding the depths of our being, of who it is that God has created us to be. All of this centers around one central question. Who are you? Who are you? I mean, who are you really? This series is meant to help us further down that road of answering that question. The question to which there really is no final answer because the work continues. The work presses forward. The, the work is, is something that we will continue to do until the day that we die of answering this question, who am I? Who have I been created to be by God? That is the purpose of this series. That is what it is that we are trying to dig into. Growing up, I was taught to believe that our identity was fluid. That our identity could morph and shift and change and move at a rate or a pace of your own choosing. I grew up in central Illinois, this kind of no-man's land in Illinois that was equidistant between Chicago and St. Louis. And in there, there was this great identity struggle, this great identity battle. Who do you root for? Do you root for the Chicago Cubs or do you root for the St. Louis Cardinals? And in the middle, in central Illinois, it was an identity crisis, an identity question. Oftentimes, you simply adorned the team colors for whatever it was that your grandfather rooted for, or your father rooted for. Or, if you were a rebel, you rooted against the team that your father rooted for, or you rooted against the team that your grandfather rooted for, just to create a little bit of internal strife. It was always either Cubs or Cardinals, and that was it. And every so often you would meet that one random weirdo that rooted for the White Sox, and you just gave him a side eye. It's like, what is wrong with you? Like, nobody, especially in central Illinois, gives a rip about the White Sox. The only people that root for the White Sox are people in the south suburbs and in the south side of Chicago. That's it. They have the smallest geographic territory and area known to man. Nobody likes the White Sox. This was the identity crisis that I grew up with early on as a first grader, beginning to recognize and realize that my friends were Cardinal fans, but I was supposed to be a Cubs fan because of my grandfathers, both of them. It was an identity crisis of trying to figure out who it was that I was supposed to root for. Do I go with family or do I go with friends? What do I put on myself? As I grew older, the identity crisis continued in terms of what was it that I was going to put on. Was I going to be a metalhead? Or was I going to be a grunge fanatic? Perhaps it would be R&B, or at that time, gangsta rap was starting its thing. 
What was I going to be? What was I going to put on? And in seventh grade, it was all about the metal. Oh, it was ACDC to the tilt and Metallica. Oh man, all of it, not the Black Album, the stuff before the Black Album when they were really a metal band, right? Like all of those, you put it on, you're like, this is the crowd. This is the group of people that I'm gonna hang out with. And then in eighth grade, it was like, no, 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 Warren G. I was a regulator and I was about to mount up. Nobody? Yeah, exactly. I'm too old for some of you with that. But then, as I got into high school, it was all about the grunge music. I loved Nirvana and STP, and it continued to grow as Soundgarden. All of these amazing bands started to come out, and for the rest of my high school life, it was all about the grunge, especially Radiohead but that was more college for me, right? Like you put on these different identities of what group or people you were going to identify with and sit with. In high school, it was also, are you gonna be a part of the marching band? Are you gonna be a jock? Which side of the aisle will you sit on? Which identity will you inhabit? Will you be a part of the crowd that did drugs, which was half of my high school class? Or will you be a part of the Pollyanna group, which was the other half of my high school class? There was no in-between. You were in one or the other. Which camp did you choose for your identity? All of these things growing up was something that you could put on and take off over the course of summer break. I can't tell you how many times you would come back to school after summer break and someone would look completely different. Not just in their clothing, but in the way in which they interacted with people, the friendships that they made over summer, and all of a sudden, they were a completely different person than they were before. They had tried on a brand new identity, had adorned a whole new set of being in the course of a summer. Identity, identity is something that we have used fluidly, that we have shifted back and forth as if the weeds or the grains uh, in, in a field moving back and forth with the wind. It is something that has always been fluid in our culture. Something that we have been taught is fluid for us as a people, identity. I identify as is a marker of that fluid thinking. I identify as a Cub fan. I identify as a Cardinal fan. I identify as a grunge fan. I identify as a marching band person. All of these things, these groupings and these places are the things that we have used to identify who it is that we are. All of these external things placed down on top of our being. Who are you? Anne Lamott captures this thinking really well in her book, Almost Everything, Notes on Hope. She says, identity is a posture that we steal and assemble as a protective coating, but it's also a ski mask, camouflage, and protection from the cold. We've all been there, right? We've all been in that place where we use these identifying markers as something that we just put on to cover ourselves up, to protect ourselves, so that we feel safe and protected in this space or in this place. 
for me, one of those places that I put on an identity, one of the things that I put on for myself to protect myself and to feel safe was show choir. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. From seventh grade through high school, I was in show choir. Now, I can spend all afternoon talking about how we were actually really, really good. It wasn't glee. We were dancing really, really well. That's what we were known for. We won nationals. Like, we were really, really good. And I could talk about that all afternoon long. But as I think about it, show choir was not my thing. It wasn't the thing that I actually really enjoyed doing. In fact, it wasn't something that I actually wanted to do at all. But I found safety and protection in there because it's what my mother wanted me to do. It's something that she desired for me and wanted me to be a part of. And so she continued to pressure and cajole me and push me into it so that in seventh grade, I said, all right, I'll just try out for it. And then I made it. And then, oh crap, now I'm here. I found that space to be an identity marker for me, to protect me from losing what I thought might be the love or the approval or the care of my mom. Now you can dissect that 10 ways to Sunday. You can pull that apart and pick that apart however you want, that's fine. But the truth behind the whole thing was my identity as a show choir kid as someone that could dance really well and that a lot of the popular kids were a part of, for me it was all about that. The very core of my identity throughout junior high and high school wasn't about show choir. It was about finding safety and protection from my mother and what it is that she would think of me if I did something else. But show choir was such an all-consuming thing that I wasn't able to. I wasn't able to find other spaces to live and reign and find my own self, to find my own way. And I think we have all done this. We've all done it. We've all been looking for and found places that, that, that give us protection and safety that may not actually be our true identity, the place deep within of who we truly are. This is actually not a new issue, I, just so you know. This is something that has been questioned and debated and talked about and thought about. There are tomes and tomes and volumes and volumes of work dedicated to the pursuit of identity. In fact, the Corinthian church is one of the more interesting places within Scripture where this wrestle is starting to happen of identity. Now, the Corinthian church is, was written these letters by Paul, two letters, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Some scholars would say that actually there's four letters there. That there's four letters there, that, that the way in which it was actually written, that they can find four distinct letters within this. And perhaps Paul wrote more than that to this specific church, but these are the only ones that survived, uh, all of the passing around. What's super fascinating about this is that they are letters. 
that they are letters that was written to this church. And it's the most extensive letter writing campaign to a church that we have access to, to an early church. There's more written available to us in the Bible to the Corinthian church than anything else. And what's also fascinating about this Corinthian church is the wrestles that they had as new Christians. This was a new group of people, a new people that were just now finding their way to Jesus, understanding who he was and what that meant for them as a people. And the other thing that's also fascinating about the Corinthian church is it was a church that was probably about the same size as us. If you listen to sociologists and scholars like, like Rodney Stark, who has written extensively about the early church, he said that all of them were actually these really, really, really tiny house churches. These churches of 10 to 12 to 15 people that would gather together. Now, we outnumber the Corinth church if it was a 15-member church, but it was still a church that Paul thought was vastly important to pay attention to. A church that, that Paul spent so much time writing to and saying, what you are and what you have to give as a people is vastly important. It's so important to the kingdom. And so he wrote to them over and over and over. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we have the beginnings of this sort of identity strife that is taking place within the church. As Christians started to talk about who it was that they identified with. Some were saying, no, 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 we are Apollos' disciples. That this guy Apollos that has been a part of helping our church become who it is, that we're with Apollos. We're Apollos Christians. And some were like, no, 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 no. Apollos is all well and good. That's fine. But we're Pauline Christians. We, we, follow the, we, we are disciples of Paul, and he's the one. Our identity is found in Paul and what it is that he has taught. In fact, Paul has written to us so much. Yes, but Apollos is here. Apollos is here. Apollos is present with us. Apollos is our discipler. Apollos is the one to whom we look to to help form us and shape us and make us. We're Pauline. We're Apollos. We divide ourselves amongst our identity and we separate ourselves left and right, arguing over and over and over that my brand of Christianity, my brand of Jesus is better. And Paul comes back at these people who are arguing, that are bickering, that are fighting about this, and he says, you're missing the point. You're missing the point about who you truly are. You're missing the point about the core, the depth of your identity. He says to them, he says, what is Apollos? Which is such a fascinating statement. What is Apollos? And then what is Paul? He thingifies Apollos. He thingifies Paul. He thingifies himself, turning their names into objects. What is Apollos? What is Paul? These are not the identities that you are to be putting on. These are not the things that you are supposed to be adorning and wearing because the only foundation of your identity is Jesus. Jesus is the pure, or the pure foundation for your identity. In chapter, or in chapter 3, verse 11, he says, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, 
which is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the foundation upon which our identity is built. This is for us as Christians, as the church. Our identity is based purely and solely upon Jesus. That is the core of our identity. That is the core of who we are. Richard Rohr puts it this way in his book, Falling Upward, or Failing Upward. He says, your true self is who you objectively are from the beginning, in the mind and heart of God. The face you had before you were born, it is the substantial self, your absolute identity, which can, neither, which can be neither gained nor lost by any technique, group affiliation, morality, or formula whatsoever. The surrendering of our false self, which we have usually taken for our absolute identity, is the necessary suffering needed to find the pearl of great price that is always hidden inside this lovely but passing shell. Your true self is who you are from the very beginning of time. Your true self is who it is that God made you to be uniquely and perfectly, crafted and cared out of love, crafted and cared with delight, crafted and cared with perfection. Who you are is who God created you to be, created us to be. And yet in the midst of it, in our struggle, in our process, in our journey, we have walked away from that true self and we have adorned other, sometimes meaningful, but other adornments for what our identity is. Walking away from that true self that God created us to be. It's a fascinating quote because towards the end, he talks about the suffering that is required in walking away from the false self and truly stepping back into who it is that God created us to be, to truly identifying who it is that we are at our very core. This is the challenge. This is the hard work of understanding who it is that we are. This is the hard work and the challenge of finding the very core of our being, of who it is that we are upon which the foundation is Jesus, that we build our identity, that our identity has been built upon that foundation of Jesus given to us by God. And over and over and over, I think we put on these identities, we put on these affiliations, we, we push ourselves into groupings with others for the simple fact that we just don't like ourselves. There's something about us that we don't like. We see other people around us. We see how they live. We see how they act. And we gravitate towards that. The whole adage is the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. 
That everywhere we look except for at home, everywhere we look that except in ourselves, the home that is ourselves, is always better. And if I just had a different hairstyle, if I just wore a different set of clothes, if I just rooted for this team, or if I just did that, all of these superficial external sorts of things, if we just did those things and brought those into ourselves, if I was more funny, like Dave Chappelle, if I was more, uh, more kind and more generous, like Mother Teresa, if I was dot, 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 if I had these things and were able to pull them into myself, then I would be good. Then that would be who I am. And while those are not bad things and bad desires, when we make those the, the absence or the whole within ourselves. That's where we step away from who it is that God created us to be. All of that to say, the most important thing that God wants us to hear, you are enough. You are enough. You don't need what other people are. You don't need to pull from other people's traits and personalities and styles and fashions. You yourself are enough. And God created you for a unique purpose, to be a unique person here and now. One of my favorite quotes comes from Martin Buber in his, uh, in his uh, book, The uh, Tales of the Hasidim. He says, in the coming world, they will not ask me, why were you not Moses? They will ask me, why were you not Zeusia? Zeusia was a rabbi who was wrestling with these questions of identity of what it meant to be more like Moses, that perhaps I would be a better human being, that I would be a better person if I looked and acted and, in fact, was the second coming of Moses. Why shouldn't I be that? Don't we need more Moseses in our world? And the wrestling that he said was, no, 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 no. At the end of my life, at the end of my time here on this earth, when I approach the throne of God, he will not ask me, why were you more like Moses? You blew it! He'll ask me, why were you not who I created you to be? Why were you not yourself? Why were you not Zeusia? Because you are enough. You are enough. Parker Palmer, in his book, Let Your Life Speak, said, Our deepest calling is to grow into our own authentic selfhood, whether or not it conforms to some image of who we ought or think we ought to be. Our deepest calling, the deepest thing that we can do and be is ourselves, the person that God created us to be. That is our deepest calling. That is our hardest work. And that is our deepest, most profound, formative work. Is to be who it is that God called us to be. Who it is that God created us to be. Is to be 
ourselves. I want you to try something with me. We've been on our phones all day thanks to the wonderful technology. I want you to take it out again and actually turn on your camera and flip it around into selfie mode. That's right. I'm not going to ask you to take a selfie. You could to mark the occasion or the moment, but I want you to look at yourself. For some of you, you might just have a compact and you can pull out the mirror. That's fine. This is a mirror exercise, just in case you were wondering. But look at yourself. Look yourself in the eyes. Look at who you are. How do you see yourself? How do you see yourself? What's that first thought that comes into your mind? Was it, my hair looks terrible? Oh man, I've been walking around with a donut in my teeth. How do you see yourself? Maybe you don't have a thought at all. Maybe you're like, this is really uncomfortable. Can I stop looking at myself? How do you think others perceive you? When you look at that image, how do you think others see who you are? What do you think they think about you? What are some of the stereotypes that shape the way you see you? How have the words and the thoughts of other people shaped how you actually see yourself? You are enough. As you stare at yourself, you are enough. And now I want you to look at yourself and say that. Tell yourself, you are enough. You are enough. You were perfectly designed. You were perfectly created to be who it is that you are. You are enough. Henry Nouwen says, God tells us, I have loved you with an everlasting love. This is a fundamental truth of your identity. This is who you are, whether you feel it or not. You belong to God from eternity to eternity. Life is just a little opportunity for you during a few years to say, I love you too. You are enough. And you are loved by God. You are enough. Thank you for listening to this week's homily. If you're in Seattle, we'd love for you to join us at 1316 3rd Avenue West in Queen Anne. 
If you'd like to support our efforts, please visit unitedchurch.gives to partner with us financially. Be in peace and God bless.